Well, good morning. My name is Karen. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I am so excited to be with you here this morning as we continue with our Abraham series. When I read through Abraham's uh, story in preparation for this series, his faith and obedience encouraged me greatly. Now, as we've heard so far in the series, Abraham did not do everything right. He made his share of mistakes. He had his share of doubts. But ultimately, he trusted and obeyed, and God blessed him for it. This morning, we're going to look at the covenant between God and Abram that takes place in Genesis 15. When I think of covenant, I think of the word promise. When I think of promises, I think of little kids. So if you have ever, if you have kids or have ever been around little kids, I'm sure you have heard. But do you promise? Maybe more alarmingly, but you promised. I don't really remember saying that to my mom growing up, and I probably should have fact-checked that because she's watching online, but I really don't think I ever said that to her. I never asked her to promise anything because my mom simply did what she said she was going to do. If she said something, she meant it. I'm not big on making promises myself, aside from an occasional pinky swear agreement with the six-year-olds in my classroom in an emergency situation. Um, But this is in part because I'm human. Promises are a big deal, a big deal that I can't guarantee in all situations I can live up to. A.W. Tozer said this about promises in his book, God's Power for Your Life. The first step in evaluating any promise is to find out who is behind that promise. A promise is only as good as the one making the promise. Is he able to deliver on his promise? What does this particular promise say about the one making it? So we're going to look at God's covenant, his promises, if you will, to Abram this morning. If you brought your Bible, you can meet me in Genesis 15. Before we start, though, I want to give you a bit of context of where chapter 15 picks up. I'm also going to put a disclaimer that I have practiced these names a million times. So just go with whatever comes out, okay? Just go with it and pretend that I am correct in my pronunciation. In Genesis 14, Abram went to a lot of work to save his nephew Lot from being carried off into captivity. And since Abram defeated the four eastern kings, all of the plunder taken from that battle legally belonged to Abram. But the king of Sodom came along and through some sly maneuvering was able to wrest it away from him. Abram could have held on to his rights, but Abram had something more valuable than the law on his side. He had the promises of God. So Abram chose to give up his rights to the riches and return them to the king of Sodom so that nobody could ever say they had made Abram rich. If and when Abram received the promises of God, Abram wanted to give God alone the glory. That's how Genesis 14 ends. So we're going to begin with Genesis 15, verses 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
Verse 1 says, after these things, which is in reference to the meetings with the kings of Salem and Sodom. Abram had given a tithe to Melchizedek and had refused the riches of Sodom. It seems this stirred something up in Abram. God had told him he'd become a great nation with a great name earlier in Genesis. But after all these years, and after refusing the wealth of Sodom, Abram seems to fall into a bit of fear. How is this going to work out, God? How am I to become a great nation? You won't let me take the reward from Sodom. I have no real ties to any nation. I am a nomadic journeyman. I can't be expected to defend my household forever. This is often the case when God works in your life. After times of victory or spiritual success, we often succumb to fears and difficulties. Temptation rushes in. That success causes us to lose our footing a bit, to lose sight of the one who saw us through the victory. Even in the life of Christ, after the baptism of John, Jesus was driven into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. And it seems Abram underwent the temptation to fear after that victory he had in Genesis 14. So God said, fear not, Abram. God knew Abram's heart. God saw Abram's fear. So he addressed it with his presence in Abram's life. Since Abram had just risked his life by going to war with four city nations, God said, I am your shield. And since Abram had just refused the reward of the king of Sodom, God said, your reward shall be very great. After missing out, so to speak, on the rewards of Sodom, Abram needed to know that God would be his reward. You see, Abram was a man living in between the promises and the fulfillment. Abram was a man living in between the promises and the fulfillment. God had made bold and big promises to him. And Abram had seen enough to know that God was at work in his life, but the promises had not yet come to pass. He was in a difficult time of living in that in-between stage. We are also living in an in-between time. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this at the beginning of his earthly ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then the second to last verse in all of scripture, it's found in Revelation twenty-two twenty. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So here we are like Abram, living in between many of God's promises and fulfillment. At times we will fear as we reject the way of the world, just as Abram felt fear rejecting the gifts of Sodom. We might even be prone to feelings of helplessness as we consider the odds that are against us. Will we be preserved by God? Is he worth following? Will he defend us? Will he fulfill his promises. To us, he may also say, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And that brings us to our first point, which is let God be enough. Let God be enough. Like Abram, God is our sustainer, our shield, and our reward. He is enough. Abram knew this, which is why he'd said to the king of Sodom in Genesis 14, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven 
and earth. He came to a place where God and what God provided was enough. He believed in God's reward. He didn't see the need uh, of blessings from Sodom because he had the blessings of God. It is when we are in between the promise and the fulfillment that we are greatly tested. Too often we slip because we feel we cannot hang on any longer. Satan tempts us and we come to a place where we think God's no longer enough for us. We may turn back to Sodom, so to speak, when we turn to relationships that hurt us or a compromise of values which cannot fulfill us or pride which elevates us in our own eyes. I have witnessed believers in a moment of loneliness compromise all they knew to engage in a foolish relationship or to compromise their sobriety by taking a drink or whatever their drug of choice was. A compromise may seem small at first, but often it costs dearly. While walking through their valley of the shadow of death, panic sets in and they buckle. God's grace extends to us when we make such decisions, but I've never met anyone who hasn't regretted their actions. Instead, they say, I wish I had trusted God. He is enough for me. I just didn't know it in that moment. We must let God be enough. In this passage, he tells Abram he will be his protector and provider. God's shield would defend Abram. God's presence would provide for Abram. This was an important message for Israel, for they often traded their glory for idols. But God is enough. Too often, we want more from God than we want God. Too often, we want more from God than we want God. In verse two, we hear these words from Abram, or we hear the words from Abram to God. It's not believed that he had not prayed up until this point, but that these are the first recorded uh, words from Abram to God. Again, verses two through three says, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Without a child, how could God fulfill his promise to make his descendants a great nation? Apparently, Abram and Sarai had taken the steps that were considered normal in their culture and time. So without a biological heir, they named a servant as their household heir. For a childless couple, it was considered a perfectly acceptable step. But it didn't sit right with Abram. What are you doing, God? You've made me this promise, but here's my situation. Listen to God's response to Abram in verses four through five. It says this, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able. And he brought, sorry, lost my spot there. If you are able to number him. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now just take that in for a moment. One of my favorite things to do between now and the end of summer is to just be outside in the moonlit with all of the stars and to look up. So Abram is being told, imagine this, looking up at the sky, that these are how many descendants 
you will have. I just want to refresh your memory in case you've forgotten. Abram and Sarai are old. Really, really old. Okay? And here God is, again, promising Abram that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm not sure what my response to that would have been, but I guarantee it wouldn't be what Abram's response was. Sometimes letting God be enough means that we need to look beyond our present circumstances. The life lived in between the promise and the fulfillment must be able to see past circumstances. All Abram could see was Eleazar, but God could see descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. God could see the way beyond what Abram could see. You see, God often works more slowly than we'd like. I think we can all agree on that at times. He was certainly working more slowly than Abram wanted. And all we can see is what we can see. We look around at our circumstances and ask, what are you doing, God? Do you see where things are at right now? Do you see what is happening in our world today? A little help? But for that in-between life, we have a secret weapon. God himself. He spoke to Abram and told him about something beyond what Abram could see. And we have page after page of God's word. It is his way of drawing us into a better reality. He paints the picture there of what he is doing far beyond our circumstances. The ability to see past your circumstances and into God's reality is powerful. Listen to verse 6 when Abram responds to God. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Hear these words from Romans 4 verses 18 through 25. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abram was to a point in his journey with God that he knew that if God made a promise, he was going to make it happen. The interesting thing is, this is not the first time that God had made a promise to Abram. God had already given Abram major promises in Genesis 12. Abram had worshiped the Lord at various altars he'd built in Genesis 12 and 13. The Lord had shown Abram the land he would give to him and his descendants in Genesis 13. And God infused him with power to fight in Genesis 14. Only now... In this moment, do we learn Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness? So is this the first time Abram believed God? Is this the moment of his conversion? Is he saved here at this point? 
It seems better to think of this as a summary statement of Abram's interactions with God. Generally, he believed God's promises, both here and earlier in scripture. God loved his faith and counted it to Abram as righteousness. This should, be a, this should be considered a pivotal moment in all of scripture. Abram believed God, God counted it to him as righteous. Today, we are called to believe the promise and revelation that God has given. We know more than Abraham. The cross is in our rear view mirror, so to speak. We know God the Son died in our place on the cross. We know the offer of forgiveness and redemption is held out to those who believe the cross is the only means of salvation. And our faith in the promise of the cross leads God to call us righteous as well. If we believe. This is one of the reasons Jesus had to live a full life rather than merely die as a child for our sins. He needed to fit, fulfill all righteousness. He had to live out a righteous life. And it's his righteousness that allows us to be called righteous today. And that brings us to point number two, which is believe God's word and promises. As awesome as it is to consider the theological ramifications of Abraham's faith, when we consider his belief in this current place in his story, it speaks to us in an additional way as well. He was living in between the promise and fulfillment and God reassured him of the future he'd planned for Abram. And Abram believed God. Again, Abram believed God. We too must believe his word to us as his people. We have great and precious promises in Christ. We must believe in redemption and restoration in cleansing and forgiveness and the kingdom that he has promised. I think of Joshua. He was a man who replaced Moses. He was called by God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. He was a man who very much lived in between the promise and the fulfillment. And rather than run in fear, he courageously led the people into the land and God met him in the process. He believed God's word and his promises. And because he did, they received the land that God had in store. Or we could talk about Noah because over and over again in scripture, God proved himself to be true to his word. Here verses seven through 11, as we begin to read about the covenant between God and Abram. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chalhedans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And verse seven, God begins by reminding Abram of where he had come from and how he had brought him out from that land to give him this new land he would possess. Verse eight is one that helps me remember that Abram was human like you and like me. And while he had big faith, he wasn't without questions. Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said, he was looking for some sort of assurance to understand how he would go from his current circumstances to what God was promising. 
kind, patient, not frustrated, God gave Abram instructions to bring animals to sacrifice to initiate the covenant. So Abram did as God told him. But with a sacrifice prepared, birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Now picture this. Abram had been promised something he can hardly even fathom. He does exactly what God calls him to do. And then boom, here come these birds of prey. In my head, I'm envisioning panic unfolding in Abram. Verse 11 simply says, he drove them away. Sounds very simple, right? I doubt it was anything but simple. I'm picturing him doing everything he can possibly do to keep those birds of prey who would ruin this covenant between him and God away. I'm picturing it was a big and great struggle despite the simplicity that was written. The cutting of animals in half seems to speak of making a covenant with someone. God and Abram understood that practice, even if we don't really understand it today. But the animals of the covenant offering are a bit interesting. Some see an allusion to Jesus in this sacrifice, a precursor to the worship system Israel later engaged in, a system that pointed to the fulfillment in Jesus. That these animals were three years old only highlights the parallel with Christ, for he was crucified after three years of public ministry. When you are living in between the promise and the fulfillment where the world seems dark and ominous, it is important to look to the cross of Christ. There, we are reminded of God's great love for us and his promise to make all things new. We're going to pick up and read verses 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That a deep sleep fell on Abram is wonderful. It is reminiscent of God's way of bringing Adam into the covenant of marriage. It also foreshadows the way that we would be brought into Christ's covenant of grace. While dead in our trespasses and sins, completely asleep to the ways and thoughts of God, Christ died for us. He made a way for us while we were completely asleep. But this deep sleep was also a picture of Abram's descendants. They were going to head into a deep sleep of a 400-year sojourn in someone else's land, a foreshadowing of the slavery in Egypt. God said he would bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and this is precisely what he did in bringing the plagues on the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians had been completely overwhelmed by judgment, they finally sent the Israelites out with great possessions. And though Abram would die in peace at a good old age, it would be his descendants who would come back to the land of promise. It would occur at the fourth generation, which might have been another way to say 400 years, since the patriarchs lived to be about 100 years. Did you catch that? The fulfillment would not occur until Abram's fourth 
generation, his fourth generation. He was never going to see the fulfillment. And yet he believed in the promises of God, even when he couldn't see him working. Why would it take so long for the promise to find fulfillment? Why did they have to wait for the promised land? God said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He was tolerating their sins, letting it come into full bloom before he brought judgment upon them. This highlights the long suffering nature of God. They were fallen and depraved, but the next 400 years would lead to their full corruption. This passage also contains many prophecies that receive literal and total fulfillment, seven of them. First, Abram's descendants would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Second, they would be servants in that land. Third, they would be afflicted there for 400 years. Israel was in Egypt for, for 430 years, but suffered for 400, which you can read about that in Exodus 12. Fourth, God would judge the nation that they serve. Fifth, Israel would leave that nation with great possessions. Sixth, Abram would not take part in the suffering because he would die in peace at a good old age. Seventh, his descendants would come back to the land of promise. Of course, we know now from our vantage point that each prophecy came to pass just as God said it would. And that brings us to our third point, wait through the darkness. 400 years is a long time, I imagine. I'm 38. It's been a long 38 years. 400 years is a long time, but God was willing to endure it to fulfill his promises. I doubt very much that that was the answer that Abram looked for, for it would but it would have to suffice. God's plans are better than ours. And when you are living in that in-between, the promise and the fulfillment, you have to learn patience while waiting through the darkness. Some low years were going to hit Abram's descendants, but God was going to use those years for his good purposes. He would shape a nation through fires of trial. He does the same in us today. I know I shared a bit of my story a few years ago, but um, I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest, Reader's Digest version, okay? So when I was growing up, there was only three things that I wanted in life. Three things. To be a wife, to be a mother, and to be a teacher. And if you know me at all, you know that I am one for three on those things. I am single. I have no children. But I do spend every day laughing with and loving on six-year-olds. And for that, I'm very grateful. My life is nothing like I had expected it to be. And I'll be honest and say that I have struggled over the years with God's plan being different and not looking like mine. Some days it's more difficult than others, but I have learned to look for the glimmers of joy in the midst of the waiting. And I don't know what God's plan is for my life beyond right here where I am this morning, but as one of my favorite song lyrics go, from the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. First Peter 1, 6 through 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up and finish with the most challenging part of the passage in terms of reading. So we're going to meet me at verse 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzanites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. While it was dark, God came by the image of smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Each element seems to have connection to ancient, ancient sacrificial rituals. God made a covenant with Abram. It was a one-sided affair. Abram was asleep while God made his promise. It was based on God, not Abram, and God would keep his covenant. God detailed the boundaries of the land that he would give Abram's descendants. Though there is some debate as to whether David's reign expanded to these broad territories or not, it's clear modern-day Israel does not possess all the land that God detailed. When Israel read this during the time of Moses, what would they have discovered? First, they would have discovered that several prophecies God had made had been fulfilled. Second, they would have discovered this additional promise laying out the land that they would someday inherit. This should have emboldened them for the future God had prepared for them. When Jesus died on the cross, establishing God's covenant with humanity, similarities occurred. There was darkness on the face of the land. As I said earlier, mankind was asleep or dead in trespasses and sin. And like the animals, Jesus suffered and died. The animals were split in two, and so was the veil inside the temple at Jesus' final breath. It was a dark and ominous moment. But through it all, Jesus had promised his people a kingdom. There is a territory he wills to give us. He desires our sanctification. He wants the church to be fruitful. And one day he will come again to establish his reign forever and eventually a new heaven and a new earth. Which brings us to our last point. Set your mind on the kingdom. When living in between the promise and the fulfillment as we are today, it is good to set our minds on the kingdom of God. He has promised a glorious day will come. And when in the struggle, it's good for us to remember his promises to us. Just as Abram's descendants had the promised land to look forward to, so we have the establishment of Jesus' reign inwardly and in the world for which to hope. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Several weeks ago, I was sitting in the back as we were singing Waymaker, and I had a moment of clarity that I know was definitely God-ordained for me. As we sang out the words, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. I don't know where you are this morning in your own walk with Jesus, but I can tell you that no matter where you are, 
Our God is a God of promise. What does he have in store for you? Believe him and his promises to you. He is good. He is faithful. He is just. And wherever you are living in between the promises of God and his fulfillment, he is with you. He is working. I want to leave you with one more quote from A.W. Tozer. We have a promise we can count on because we have a promiser who has never failed and can never fail. We have a promise we can count on because we have a promiser who has never failed and can never fail. If you've never accepted Christ, maybe today is the day that you would make that important step of faith. Throughout Abram's lifetime, he had to take multiple steps of faith, dare I say, leaps of faith. Today could be the start of your faith journey, living between the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises. Let's pray. Father God, I am grateful for um, your word, Lord, for your word that allows us to know that you are a God of promise, Lord, and that you are true to those promises. Lord, as we each are in our own in-between promise and fulfillment, Lord, would you uh, give us peace in that waiting, Lord? Would you give us joy in the waiting? Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross who made a way for us, Lord, to be counted as righteous today. Lord, thank you for uh, the gift of Abraham's life and what it has taught us. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you are a God of promise, that even when we can't see you working, Lord, you are at work on our behalf. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 